Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. happened to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be no to run boots full of blood. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Chances of survival were very, very slick. The soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the pain burst. Proud of the crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Welcome to the first bonus episode of Life on the Line 2018. On this podcast, we have a conversation with an Australian war veteran out every Tuesday, and bonus episodes on Fridays. The Friday bonus episodes are conversations with historians, authors, and those working in the veterans community in some capacity. Today's guest is Tim Kolzak, a veteran of the United States military and founder of both the Veterans Project and the Caregiver Project. Tim, thanks for coming on Life on the Line. Oh, thanks for having me on, Alex. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, it's pretty cool because I've gotten to do quite a few podcasts in the last couple of years, but being on an Australian podcast is pretty rad. So I've covered one Australian guy for the project so far, and I plan on covering many others. Um, and I've got a few friends that are from over there, so I'm glad to be on. Thanks for having me. Well, we're... Very pleased to welcome you to the airwaves down under. And uh, yeah, it'll be great to get more of our veterans profiled by your projects because I know from my experience, there's a lot of great stories out here and it's just finding the time for you to tap into them all. Absolutely. All right. So Tim, before we get to your project, you're a veteran yourself. Yes, I am. Um, I spent six years in the United States Army in What's basically, uh, I, I don't know how it works in Australia. I know you have reserves, um, but we have what's called the National Guard here. And I was in the Texas Army National Guard. So there are kind of some assumptions about the Texas Army National Guard, about the Army National Guard period that uh, just aren't true anymore. You know, it's you kind of hear the jokes like nasty guard and things like that, you know, like because because uh, from the Vietnam era. Um, it was kind of a way to join and like not have to go overseas um, for guys that were kind of avoiding being in Vietnam. And now that's very far from the truth. Our, our units deployed Iraq and Afghanistan quite a bit. And if you look at the overall troop strength, I could be wrong on this, but I believe that most of the time the Army National Guard has more soldiers overseas than the actual active component does. So um, it's it's the intensity is definitely different. So when I did, um, you know, it was 2005, I was 17 years old. And man, I'll tell you what, it was a bad year in Iraq. Um, you know, a lot of guys were getting hurt or hurt or killed. And it was just a very dangerous year. So I was 17 years old. I had to get my parents to sign a form to let me in. And I, and I remember the reality set in really quick when I got to basic training at Fort Knox, Kentucky. Um, it was like, you know, all of a sudden I'm surrounded by these, you know, all these young guys that are about to go off to war. And I remember my dad saying to me, look to the right of you and look to the left of you, because, you know, in the next 10 years, a lot of those guys won't be around anymore. And that was like a very startling, you know, thought 
Um, and when I got there, I was really able to think about that and process that. And it was tough. It was tough. I'm not going to tell you like, oh, basic training was super easy. I skated through. Now it was hard, man. My drill sergeants were hard, tough men, and they'd just gotten back from uh, the first tour of combat in Iraq because it was 05. And so they'd been over there for 12 months, 18 months um, on those first tours. And um, it really affected their mentality. You could tell that they knew that they were training us to live. Like this was the first iteration of combat drill sergeant, um, you know, since Vietnam. You know, we'd had some smaller skirmishes here and there. But these were the first real hardened combat drill sergeants since Vietnam. So it was definitely a different mindset. And you could tell that they took it very, very, very seriously. So that was my path. I joined then and uh, 2005 uh, and I went to college. I, I was actually on a split option program. So I went to basic training. I got to do my senior year of high school and then I went to my AIT or advanced individual training for my schooling for like my MOS, which is a military op occupational specialty. And then from there, uh, I joined my unit and I actually went to college, started college and I got deployed to Iraq about halfway through my college uh, baseball career. I was playing baseball in college and about halfway through I got, I got the call that I was being deployed to Iraq. So, um, uh, that was that was an interesting time in my life. <laughs> was that what you'd been seeking, an overseas deployment? I mean, what inspired you to join up? No, I'll be honest. I really wasn't. To be honest, at the time, this is going to sound awful, but if I could have skated through my time, I would have. Uh, I just didn't have the mindset that said, I want to go to war, because I, I think my dad always said to me, you know, you never want war. You You join and you're ready for it. But you never want that. So um, because, you know, war is a terrible thing. It's not beautiful. It's not great. There's no, you know, uh, glory in, in really in battle. Really, the, the glory comes from the individual aspect of will, being willing to fight for your brothers and sisters around you. Uh, so I, I didn't have any, like, dreams of going overseas. But interestingly enough, um, when I went, it was probably the best thing that's ever happened to me in my life besides my project. Um, it, it really is. It really was some of the best and worst times of my life. But in the end, it really gave me my ability now to do the Veterans Project, because if I hadn't gone overseas, I don't think I could have I could see from the perspective of the guys and girls that I'm covering. So I'm glad that I did it. But my inspiration for joining was actually college. Uh, I knew that my parents couldn't pay for my school, and I knew that there was no way in other than, you know, accruing a massive amount of debt, you know, with loans or joining the military. And so military was the way I went because that was the honorable thing to do. And my dad had served for 12, actually 10 years in the United States Air Force. Uh, so so I knew that, you know, that was that was an honorable path, you know, and I wouldn't regret it. Well, you serve your country, you discharge, and you go on to study. And is that when you discover photography? Yes. So it, that, that was interesting. I, I got back from Iraq, and my time of enlistment uh, came up. So I was done with my contract. And I knew immediately I wanted to get out and finish my, uh, my bachelor's degree. So I did that. I finished my bachelor's. I went straight into my master's degree. And I was getting my master's in 
what's called Emerging Media and Communication. It was a pilot program. Uh, it's UT Dallas was the first school in the nation to have a social media master's degree. So I got my master's in what I say to people, Facebook. So, <laughs> so I basically got my master's in Facebook and Twitter. So, um, <laughs> you know, that has real value nowadays, uh, either fortunately or unfortunately, the way you see it, you know. Um, it's a reflection on society. Yep, go on. <laughs> yes, definitely a reflection on society. But the important thing is knowing how to play that to play that properly, you know. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I got my master's. I was about halfway through it. And I, I took this. I was just picturing myself chained to a desk uh, running somebody else's social media and there was something within me that just felt like I needed to do something bigger than that. And I, I didn't really know what that was. And I felt that way since I was really young. But these feelings kept going. And, and as I got through, I took I just randomly took this photography course. And I never picked up a camera before that in my life. So I'd always kind of loved, liked photography, thought it was cool. But I... You know, I kind of was happy to watch from the sidelines. So in my first class, my professor probably thought I was nuts. In fact, I know she did because she's like, you're taking a master's level course and you've never done anything in photography. <laughs> so most of my first course was, you know, me trying not to burn the studio down, you know, with all the lighting arrangements and everything. Um <laughs> So that, it was mostly that, uh, but it was, it was, there's something, oh, just incredible about the process. I, I picked up a camera and I was in a very painful spot in my life because of a, you know, a, a personal issue and, and it, it was transformative, man. I, I don't know how else to describe it, but when I picked up a camera and I started photographing, I could focus on the other side of the lens and what I was fo on what I was photographing other than myself. I didn't have to think about myself. And that was a beautiful moment for me. Being selfless is what brought me the most joy. Focusing on the on what's in front of the lens because any photographer will tell you if you're thinking about yourself or your own issues during a photography session your 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 photography will suffer. So, so that was um, an incredible moment for me. So, like I said, I never really had any photography experience, uh, but you know, master's degree is where I started, and man, I'm glad I did. Well, that leads us to my next question: the Veterans Project. What is it, and what's the mission? So, the Veterans Project is a comprehensive photographic essay where I follow veterans around from. It started off with Iraq and Afghanistan. That was kind of my niche. But I realized the need to cover the World War II guys because so many of those guys are dying. But it's a photographic essay where I follow these guys around. I take pictures of them in their day-to-day -day life. And I show what their reentry into polite society looks like. So I'm taking pictures of guys um, in the reintegrative and the reintegrative aspects of that. It's not necessarily a lot about combat, although there are questions about combat. It's mostly related to reintegration. So I'm taking pictures of these guys in black and white. I'm building them into a blog, and I ask them about 30 to 35 questions related to their service. And that number's grown as, I go, as I've gone on. It started off with 10 questions um, and, and really like five to 10 photos. It was nothing very big. That was my, that was my capstone project in my master's. It was like 10 questions 
questions and 10 photos. Now it's up to like 35 to 40 questions and probably like 50 to 60 photos. I can understand how that grows like that. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know how it is, man. It's like you have an idea and it's like this pretty cool thing, but you don't really know how to grasp it in a lot of ways. You don't really know what it's going to mold itself into. And as it grows, it just kind of transforms on its own. And all of a sudden, I started finding these new questions I wanted to ask these guys because I'm a veteran myself. All of a sudden, I'm with them. And I'm fascinated by the process of reintegration. And I'm finding myself wanting to ask more and more and more questions, you know. So it was just so it was just such a major moment for me um, in my growth. So that's what project is. I, I build that into a blog and then Every day on the Instagram, I post one photo with one quote. So it'll be like one guy's story for three to four weeks. And every day I'll post a different photo of him with a different quote attached. And that's that's the veterans project. So started off with Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. More recently, and what got me into Sundance Film Festival was my profiling of a World War II veteran who was a uh, baton death march survivor. Um, so I photographed him, and uh, it was just a fascinating story, man. I mean, fascinating and horrific all at the same time. But his uh, his brother died in the camp with him. Um, his brother was in the camp on that march, and he died after like two weeks of starvation. His, uh, the veteran's name was Alfred Hawes, who I covered. And it was just out in this little farming town in New Mexico. I traveled probably like 11, 12 hours by drive from Texas to go cover him. And he's living out in this kind of decrepit old nursing home. And I covered him there. And it was one of the most fascinating stories, if not the most fascinating stories I've ever heard. And uh, he's talking about burying his own brother in the camp and then surviving that aftershock of the Nagasaki bomb. He was blown into a trench by that bomb. And the Japanese, because his arm was broken in a few places, they cut off his arm with a rusty saw. Um, and he managed to survive that. He came back to Texas um, when, after three and a half years of being tortured and beaten and watching his friends be marched off to their deaths every day, he uh, he was able to survive that, and when he got back to Texas, I believe it was eighty seven pounds. Um, you know, it was after three and a half years, so absolutely horrific. But you know, sorry to go into a lot of detail on that story in particular, but that's one that really just captured my imagination. Just an incredible, incredible man, and he actually died a month after I covered him. He was gone, so it's so important to capture these legacies because they're about. 500 World War II veterans dying every day, um, and we have 2.8% left, at least in America. So, Yeah, that's blown me away, Tim, and you're right. Those stories are so few and becoming fewer every day. They're so precious. The fact he you know, got down to 87 pounds or 40-odd kilos for Australian listeners, that's just frightening. And then he goes yeah, on to... I forget that I'm talking to Australians too. <laughs> That's all right, mate. Well, oh, yeah. we'll, we'll convert like, it. What does pounds mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can convert it. I'll leave that up to you. <laughs> We're used to US TV shows, um, but yeah, it's. I can see how that one's been so important to you and was a transformative experience in helping you expand the project and redefine it. And I can see how the project, as well, it started as a college capstone, and then you just had a passion for it and kept it going and are making it its own thing now. 
But in the very first instance, what inspired you to photograph just veterans specifically? Is it because you're one yourself? Um, yes and no. That's a very interesting story. And, 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 very, and by very interesting, I mean probably one of the most interesting aspects of the Veterans Project. So my professor who kind of inspired me to start this was a UC Berkeley graduate. So she went to Cal Berkeley. And Cal Berkeley here in the United States is a very, very liberal institution. And, and that's fine. There's no issue with that, except for the fact that they were some of the biggest protesters of the Vietnam War. Um, you know, there are a lot of stories of them spitting on soldiers as they came back from Vietnam and throwing stuff at them and, you know, even mugging them in different situations when they got back from Vietnam. So um, our Vietnam veterans were treated horrifically. I mean, absolutely no excuse for how they were treated. Same with ours. Oh, yeah. So you know what it's like. I mean, we, we hear so many stories of some just horrific treatment. And for me, ignorance is a terrible excuse. But really, that was what it was, is the media was funneling a bunch of information in the Vietnam War. And you're seeing all this horrible imagery and videography, which is war, man. War is horrible. It's not beautiful. Most civilians probably shouldn't see what it looks like. It's just there's nothing. I mean, you're killing men. Think about it. You're taking a man's life. There's nothing beautiful or pretty about that. So when people see that on TV and that's broadcast to them, it's going to have a very negative um, – it's going to create a very negative feeling in people. And that's really pretty much what ended the Vietnam War was just the, the media response was so heavy. And you saw some pretty horrible images and – and then they took that out on the soldiers as they came back, which was a which was the wrong way to react to it. You know, really, they should have been mad at our government if they were mad at anybody at all. But they're mad at the soldiers that were being drafted into the military. Anyways, I digress. The, the really the she was the inspiration. She was one of the lead protesters during the Vietnam War. Oh wow! And she told she told me this. She she pulled me into her office and she tells me this and. And at first, I kind of was like, I felt a little angry when she's telling me this because I'm like, what? why are you telling me this? And then she says, you know, Tim, I, I know that uh, I know that you're going to feel, but I don't know how you feel about this, but I really think you need to tell veterans stories through your photography. She said, I feel horrible about what I did back then. And if we can make it up somehow, let's do that. And you know what's funny is my my initial reaction was not one of happiness or, or anything like that. It was more, I was more felt I more felt like I was being pigeonholed. Like she was doing this to me because I'm a veteran, and she didn't think I was talented enough to really shoot anything else. Like I just had to photograph veterans because I'm a vet. But really, what she was doing is she was carving out a niche in a very competitive world. Photography is is very competitive. Everybody wants to be a photographer, so or most people do. It's 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 a very big job, and it's very lucrative if you do it right. But she just knew that I had an interesting perspective because there aren't many veterans in the arts. There just aren't. So for me to be in the arts and for me to have an eye for photography, she knew that I could do something with that. So. Since then, man, I, I was invited back to UT Dallas as one of the top 30 artists over the past 30 years. Um, my piece, one of my, a couple of my pieces made it into the gallery at UT Dallas as the first ever installation. 
And so I got to go back there. This was about six months ago as one of the top 30 artists, um, which was a huge accolade for me after doing this for about four years. You know, most of the people in this gallery had been at it for 20, 25 years. So to, to be there was an honor and to have her there with me was an even bigger honor. And, uh, and I remember, um, you know, she hugged me and she was tearing up pretty heavily as she hugged me. And, uh, it was just a really special moment, man, because I'd been in all these publications and I gotten to go on all these shows now and I've, I've, you know, covered some incredibly amazing men and women. And so to kind of return to that, it was, it was really amazing. So she's the one that inspired me. And quite honestly, it talks a lot about redemption and forgiveness and being able to forgive people and understand and seeing the best in everyone because, you know, she could have gone on the rest of her life and never had any thoughts of helping us out or anything. But she was very uh, selfless in that moment. She knew she'd done wrong and she wanted to make up for it. I think that's a very important lesson. So let's talk about your process. I mean, for a podcast, I bring a couple of microphones and sit down and chat with the veteran and do some photos and it's fairly straightforward. And you've got your 30, 35 questions, but you're trying to capture these guys candidly in their environment and showcase who they are. How do you actually document these guys and girls? Yeah. So, uh, it was a very, it's a very interesting process. And actually there were quite, you know, I used to get more no's than I got yeses when I would ask people to be a part of the project, because I think a lot of people, there, there was really no evidence of my work yet. So they didn't really know what the basis of the project was and what the reason was for it. Even when I explained it to them very clearly, they were still like, you know, veterans are a very humble group typically. So they don't really love being followed around with a camera and having their story told in that way. So it was very tough to get to the guys at first, but I had four guys give me a chance to follow them around. That was my capstone project. Those four guys let me follow them. And uh, I just followed them throughout their day and showed their day-to-day tasks. And that wasn't really the most powerful aspect of the project. You know, those photos, those photos connected with the quotes is what made it powerful. Because you're seeing them in their day-to-day lives and they're talking about their toughest times in combat. And they're talking about their toughest days in reintegrating. And the responses that I got on those first few blogs were like, you know, uh, just a large amount of shock and awe. You know, a lot of civilians that saw it were just like, I had no idea these guys were like this. Like, I had no idea the individual aspects of soldiers and Marines and, and, and what that entailed. So for, for I was giving everybody an insight into the day-to-day life of a human being who made a decision to selflessly join an entity to where he could die at any moment, really. And that is an amazing example of humanity at its best, making those decisions in in such a sacrificial manner. So for me, that was huge, was showing just the day-to-day aspects and giving, you know, putting a, a face and a name to a mass of veterans and showing the individual aspects of that, what that looks like. Let's also touch on the caregiver project. How does that fit into the picture? Um, yeah, so the caregiver project, I started that about six months ago, and I I haven't been as active as I want to on it. Uh, I'm just, I'm kind of overcome with uh, with 
the processes of the veterans project right now, but I'm very, I'm just as passionate about the caregiver project. It's very big to me. So what the caregiver project is, is I follow around these families of guys who have been either killed in action, wounded in action, deployed, or they took their own life. So the gold star is killed in action. Silver star is wounded in action. White star is suicide and blue star is deployed. So I cover the families of these guys and I show what their lives are like. So one of the fir- the first project I covered was very intentional and it was the Chick family. So my best friend from my unit in Iraq was a guy who deployed five times to Iraq and it was his last tour and I covered him for the Veterans Project when we got back. Because it was one of my, it was, I believe he was the he was the second veteran I've ever covered, and he had a tremendous amount of combat on his record. Uh, but I think it was about a year after I covered for him for the project, he took his own life, and that was such an emotionally impactful moment for me, where I realized, oh my gosh, like if I hadn't covered this guy and shown his legacy, like what would there be out there about him? There wouldn't be much. So it made me realize how important this was. But anyways. As I covered him, I, I was looking at his family and I was thinking, who's telling his family story? Like his wife has gone through hell, you know, who told his kid's story? You know, what's that look like? And I, I never really seen that done. So my idea was just to follow these guys, these families around and show what that looked like. That that was big for me. So kind of in the same format, and same way, I follow the family around and I show what they're going through. And man, I tell you what, it's such a difficult project because, you know, I've said this so many times, but where's the redemption? Where's the redemption for someone that has lost their loved one in combat? What do you say to people in that situation? There's nothing you can say really to make it better. And, And at the end of the project, sometimes I get these families saying to me, you know, Tim, I don't know if it was worth it. And that's the hardest thing in the world to hear because... I know what my mom and my dad would be going through a living hell if they lost me overseas. So I, 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 it's a very difficult project. But basically, I'm trying to bring light to these stories and show them and what they've gone through. Um, and it's just a, it's another passion project for me. I, I know that it needs to be done. I know that it needs to be done until you know I myself am in the grave. And I'm absolutely going to fall through with it until until then, because it's such an important thing to show the families. Well, I can appreciate how involved the process is and how long it would take to set up and document each veteran and each family. So balancing the needs of all the stories coming your way will be a challenge, but it's such a worthy cause. People can relate to the veteran who's returned home and see, like you said, that redemption arc or that light at the end of the tunnel of that story. Whereas if you're chatting with, say, a gold star family that sounds very challenging and i applaud you for that difficult work no thank you i appreciate it and you know i'll say this one of the most difficult aspects of that is just exactly what you said the lack of redemption i mean there's so much anger there's so much frustration and you know i i was covering the family of a marine who was killed in homeland province which is a one of the worst parts of afghanistan that she can possibly be deployed to a lot of Marine units are down there. And actually, 
uh, before the American Marine units, it was a lot of British Army units down there. Um, and so it, it was just there's the Taliban is very well dug in, very well entrenched there. And uh, he was 20 years old, two weeks from his 21st birthday. And uh, he took a round of the chest on a rooftop in Sangin province. And uh, he bled out and died. And uh, I went and I covered his family. And I was at talking to his mom, and I said, you know, Penny, I said, honestly, can you talk to me about, has it gotten easier for you like, over the years? Has it gotten a little bit easier for you now that you're seven years removed from the, from the incident? She said, Tim, it gets harder every day. And I, I, I just, I said, well, what do, you, what do you mean? She said, I'm forgetting about my boy. And I can't describe to you the chills I felt when she made that statement because I was thinking about my own mother losing me and forgetting who I was, forgetting, you know, they have some videos, they have a lot of pictures, but none of that can truly capture the essence of a person. Yeah, you know, I know I'm kind of fighting myself on that because I do a project based upon that. But you cannot tell the true individual tale 100% in photography and videography. You can only capture some aspects. That's the beautiful thing about humanity is we're so diverse. We're so – we have so much depth that it's hard to capture. So she's forgetting aspects of her own son. She'll never see her son get married. She'll never see her son have children. And she's living with that fact every single day while she's watching his Marine buddies that came back, get married and have kids and one day have grandkids. And it's going, and it's, it's very hard. It was very hard to hear her say that, to be honest, Tim, some of those memories of John are fading away. You know, what do you say to a mom in that scenario? I, I, I didn't have words. I, I just said, I'm sorry. And, you know, and she started crying and I, and she hugged me and, uh, that, that's that's all that can really be done in that in that moment. Well, I think you're right. Uh, you know, a series of photos or video can never truly capture the essence of a person. But that guy you documented who later took his own life, you've got that photographic memory, intimate portrait of him, and that's essential. Although it will never replace the man, it's still you know an important insight into who he was, and that's something that can always be looked back upon. Right. Absolutely. I think it's really the best thing. It's the best we can do, you know, and I think that's, I think that's, uh, that's a great, and, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to strut my own stuff, but it's a noble thing that needs to be done because these men are, you know, as, as we go on through time, we're going to need those legacies remembered. It's a very important thing, uh, to remember because, you know, without this information and we forget, we forget the sacrifices. We really forget the essence of our freedom. Well, I think that's why we're both doing our respective projects. So what do you think you've learned from the veterans over the course of doing this photographic essay? Oh, man, I, you know, there, there have been so many different things I've learned. But I, I would say that the greatest lessons have come from our World War II veterans because of the level of humility uh, that they show. You know, one of the best, one of the greatest things that I see among the World War II population is they are not afraid to teach us younger veterans lessons and they will speak unfiltered and they don't care what they say. I'm sure it's the same for the Australian World War II veterans. They're going to say exactly what's on their mind. 
you're going to hear it. And if you don't like it, oh, well, you know, what do you say to a man that charged up beachheads and was shot at every single day and watched his friends picked apart every day for, you know, the better part of two, three years, sometimes four. I say, yes, sir. Yes, sir. (laughs) That's perfect. That's exactly what I say, too. And I don't question it at all. They could say anything. I'd be like, yes, sir. Absolutely. You're right. (laughs) Um, You know. So the amazing aspect of it has been for me is that they're not afraid to teach us lessons. And I, I've asked these guys quite honestly, hey, what's the biggest issue that you see coming from the Iraq and Afghanistan veterans? And they say, pride. Pride. They say, you guys come back and you act like you're owed something. And it's not all of you, but a good deal of you come back just like the rest of society is nowadays. You come back and you act like you're owed something because you're a veteran. But guess what? You're not owed anything. I had a veteran that I covered, uh, Paul Merriman. He was an Iwo Jima Marine. He died a couple of months after I covered him. But he was just a joy of a man, an incredible human being. He went on to own a $240 million company called Hisco, uh, Houston Industrial Supply Company. And he was one of the guys doing the damn thing on Iwo Jima. Um, You know, an absolute monster of a man at 18 years old, you know. Uh, just surviving day to day. I think 26 days he made it before he took a Japanese grenade to the back. Um, But he survived that grenade and was back on the streets patrolling Tokyo after the invasion was over, uh, probably about two weeks later. So grenade to the back, back up on the feet in two weeks. You know, normal stuff. (laughs) But, but, uh, you know, I would have been in a, I would have been in the fetal position sucking my thumb probably for the next six months. But, um, you know, he was a, he's a mountain of a man. And, and you know what he told me? He said, you guys come back and, you know, you, you, you act like you're owed something. But he goes, you know what you need to do? You need to come back and you need to be thankful that you got to serve your country. And he said this in the way that he said, when I went back to my company, it, when, you, when, when these young guys go back to their company, they need to come back and they need to go to their employer and the other employees and say, my time in combat is over. I put it behind me. I'm moving on with my life. My best days are not behind me. My best days are still coming. And combat was a good time in my life. It was a type of sabbatical and it grew me as a man. And I'm grateful to be alive. I'm grateful to be back here. I'm grateful for this job and I'm grateful that I got to serve my nation in combat. It was a wonderful privilege. And Paul said that to me, you know, and and Paul died, like I said, about a month later, but I remember one thing. I remember going into his room and looking at all his Iwo Jima photos. And I said, Paul, what's what's one of the best things? I mean, you've made a lot of money in your life, a lot more than anyone else has. You're a multi, multi multi-millionaire. What's the best thing about being, living in America, you know, as, as an American, what's the best thing? He said, you know what the best thing is? He said, I pull my covers up over me at night and I'm not getting shot at and I'm not watching my friends get blown up. That's the best thing in the world. I have nothing to say to that. That's fantastic. <laughs> and I guess particularly with the modern veterans where you're also looking at that arc of redemption in a way that with all that investment, all that training, all those skills, all that unique experience, you're highlighting how veterans today post-service can be such a constructive force in society as the World War II veterans are telling you to go and be. Absolutely. And and so I want to hit on that is the, the greatest theme I really see from these younger guys is just 
um, picking themselves up by their bootstraps. Yeah, there is some entitlement. There's definitely some of that. And those World War II guys are right. There is, you know, that happens a lot with us. But I will say that the majority of what I've seen is guys coming back and picking them up, by the, picking themselves up by their bootstraps and getting out there and progressively living each day to the fullest and attacking their goals and objectives, uh, you know, with with the greatest of fervor, and really kind of in it, it, really kind of living out that motto that that general, you know, that Mattis brought up. Now our Secretary of Defense, Mad Dog Mattis, one of the things that he said was. You know, post-traumatic growth is a huge thing, and it's and it's a true thing. And I've seen these guys have post-traumatic growth, go out into society and not let that PTSD affect their working order. Actually, it becomes a position of strength for them. They take their combat experiences, those leadership experiences, some of those traumatic things they've seen overseas, and they turn that into a positive for the rest of their lives and their careers. And that doesn't mean they don't struggle. Of course they struggle. They have demons. Um, some of them lose the battle at home. But most of what I see is very successful gentlemen doing huge things. I mean, Tim Kennedy, who I covered for the project, the UFC fighter after he gets back um, from, I, I think it was four or five tours he did Iraq and Afghanistan. That's a good skills transfer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you know. I mean, knows how to scrap overseas, brings it back home, and scraps at home. You know. <laughs> so Tim's an amazing guy, um, an incredible ambassador for all of us. But you know, just the typical what you would imagine as a Green Beret, and he's a great guy. And then Nate Boyer, who's a really close personal friend of mine ever since I covered him, uh, you know, he's come back and, you know, he played for the Seattle Seahawks for a little bit and NFL football team here in America. And he, uh, and he's done incredible things for the veteran community since he's acted in some movies. In fact, he's in that movie, uh, Den of Thieves that just came out with Gerard Butler and 50 cent. He's got a, he's a detective in that movie. Um, and he's doing some really cool things for the veteran art community. So he quickly became one of my best friends because obviously we're both artists in our own respective ways. And um, and then, you know, Kirstie Ennis, you know, she she lost her leg in Afghanistan and now she's been on the cover of, you know, ESPN body issue. And she's been in front of, you know, a ton of she's been invited to SBs and She's done a ton of different things for the veteran community and the wilderness outdoor community, taking veterans hunting and on these different adventures. And, and she's doing huge things as well. So there, you know, that's three stories out of so many, so many stories that I could tell. Um, so, so just, I'm seeing a lot of success coming out of our community and I'm very proud of it. It makes me so proud to be military and it makes me so proud to say I'm a veteran and most importantly, it makes me so proud to say that I'm Army. <laughs> I got to let people know that, you know, I'm Army. Of course. And that's really encouraging because there's that destructive stereotype too that I think you're working to disprove that, you know, if someone slaps on the label of PTSD, it means a veteran is broken and unhinged or not good to anyone. You know, Alex, that's a very important point you're making is because this project started off and it, and it is what it is. It's a bridge builder to the civilian society. We need to show civilians what we're capable of. So people say to me, what's the end goal of the Veterans Project? What are you trying to do with the project? And I say, you know, it's not just an awareness piece. I picture down the line people being able to read these stories and see that veterans are very capable in almost all aspects. So 
why wouldn't you want to hire a veteran? Maybe future employers are reading the Veterans Project and saying, wow, man, these people are incredible. The things they've gone through. And granted, you know, you're going to have your you're going to have your dirt bags that come out of your unit. You know, I mean, everybody's got a dirt bag in their unit. But for the most part, they're incredibly capable human beings that are doing things at a higher capacity than most. And so when you take those things and you translate them back into civilian society, you've got very capable leaders and very capable followers, too. They know how to follow and they know how to do what they're told and they know how to take a task. And finish that task, not to the standard, but above the standard. And that's and that's really what you what you want in an employee. Um, and that's what you really want in a business in a business owner. Um, a lot of these veterans are going out and starting their own businesses, and and that's incredible. It's it's really an amazing thing to see. Um, and I know that it it motivates me every day to make this project better and better every single veteran that I cover. Yeah, I understand fully because plenty of veterans are willing to talk with me about you know their PTSD or how it's affected them. But they're always much more than that and are working towards reaching a goal despite what stage of the struggle they're in. Yet I think we're in this hashtag society or frame of mind where it's just much easier to put someone in simple labels and it's really hard. And yet I, we need these deep dives, you know, such as these photographic essays to try and I don't want to say raise awareness because that's um, a raise understanding is more what I'm trying to achieve. Yes, that's important. And and one thing that you're saying is something that is very detrimental to uh, to the guys and girls coming back. PTSD is a real thing. But, you know, it, it's in these movies like, you know, thank you for your service and movies like that that are I don't know if you've seen it. I don't know who's seen it out there and i don't want to offend anyone if they really like the movie but i will tell you that i believe movies like that are destructive because they show a veteran coming back and he can't really get over his ptsd and he's struggling all the time and does that happen yes it happens but that is a microcosmic issue compared to the greater macrocosm which is a lot of guys out there succeeding and doing incredible things not being beat up by their ptsd and guess what? You've got so many choices when you come back nowadays of where you can get your help from. Um, there are so many civilian entities out there that are willing to help us. We just can't be afraid to speak up. You know, I'll tell you quite honestly, my squad leader that took his own life, he wasn't trying to get help. It, he wasn't. He would he would shout out to me every once in a while, and he was definitely very troubled. And I would come back to him and you know help him out as much as I could. He was seeing a therapist for a little while, but then, you know, in the end, he was he was sure of what he wanted to do, and that was to take his own life. He he knew that, and and it and it's hard to see, but I will tell you this: that that's a smaller issue compared to the overall, you know, entity of our veterans returning, and most of them are committed to leading better lives when they get back, and not letting that time in combat be their greatest time. So. You kind of got me off on a tangent there, but I'll say that it is very, it's very detrimental to show these guys in that light. When that, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't make any movies about that ever, but when that's the greater, um, that's the greater view of what we're seeing as far as veterans and what we're being shown by the media, it's just not true. It's plain and simple, false. I don't like it. 
It bothers me as a veteran who's seen so many capable veterans out there. And I, you know, in that passion that I fight with on the Veterans Project is to kind of end that attitude and end that mentality. I want to wake up as many people as I can and really be the anti-force when it comes to a lot of those things. Showing PTSD is the only thing that we're known for. I don't, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm quite honestly sick and tired of it. And it's, it's something that I'm going to attack as the project gets bigger and bigger. I'm, I'm going to raise that awareness continually that we are leading very positive lives for the most part. Yeah, you're trying to reclaim the narrative, and rightly so. Absolutely. And we talked a bit earlier about how you're focusing on the Veterans Project and you're trying to expand the Caregiver Project and it's just finding all the time. So, Tim, as someone running their own Veterans Project, I can anticipate the answer to this question, but I do have to ask. <laughs> I already know the question you're going to ask, but I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you ask it anyway. So go ahead. Yeah, I want to hear it. <laughs> Why not expand the team? Why just keep it to yourself? Oh, man. Well, <laughs> that's why I gave you the preamble. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but it's no, it's a necessary one. Um, you know, I I'll put it to you this way. No matter how I say this, it sounds cocky. But if you were going to take, let's say, Andy Warhol is. I don't know if you know who Andy Warhol is. He's yeah. a great artist, great painter. Yep. Let's say you take an Andy Warhol piece and you bring. Vincent Van Gogh back from the dead, and you bring and you bring Vincent in the room, and you're like, "Hey, uh, here's this Andy Warhol piece. Andy wants you to paint the rest of the painting. It's not going to be an authentic Andy Warhol piece anymore. It's probably not going to look that great. It's probably going to be pretty weird. It's just no artist is going to let another artist in that space really step in. I'm not saying that collaboration never works." It can, but when you have a singular vision and a driving passion that is really your lifeblood, it's hard to bring somebody else in and say, hey, can you see my passion and also do it as well? Just And they might be just as passionate as you, but they're going to have a different vision of what that looks like. And with partnerships also brings the possibility of massive problems down the line, like you know, for example, you're getting into it within a year. And I've seen it happen, man, in the artist community. I've seen it happen in every community with businesses. But partnerships can be very volatile and they can create rifts and they can create. Um, so, so almost for me, the risk is worth more. The risk is more than the reward in a, in a case like that. I just think that I'm going to start running more stories at a time. I've been running one at a time the whole time that I've been doing this project. I'm going to start running two, three, or four at the same time. And that's not really going to increase my workload. It's really just going to mean that I have less of a backlog because when I cover these guys, I typically let their story go on for three or four weeks, just one guy. And the reason I did that is because I wanted to highlight that individual. I didn't want any other individual in the spotlight. I wanted that veteran to be in the spotlight. But it's starting to become an issue because I need to cover so many more veterans. So I'm thinking now here with uh, each coming project, it's probably going to be three or four veterans at a time that are going to be highlighted uh, throughout the weeks. And so, so that's what's going to happen. So as far as team expansion – could it happen one day down the line? I, I don't know. I Maybe. But for now, I'd say a definite no, um, because it's just not genuine to the process 
of what I'm doing. And, and frankly, it takes kind of a mix of a few aspects. And you know how that is. For me and my guys, it's hard for them to talk to. And, and Alex, I don't know. Are you a veteran yourself? I'm not, no. Okay. So a lot of my guys struggle with talking to non-veterans. So I have a very unique aspect in that I am a veteran. That's no offense to you, man. I love that you're doing it. I think it's awesome. Um, I've quite honestly, I've run into some veterans that just would not talk to civilians. So I've encountered that. <laughs> I'm sure you have, but I think it's admirable that you're reaching out there and still trying to sell the stories and, and, and show these guys a respect level. I just know for my team, I would, you know, I, it would be very hard for me to bring on another civilian because I've run into it so many times. Um, and so it takes a veteran in the arts and, you know, not many veterans are in the arts. It's just true. And then also kind of no matter what, if you bring in another storyteller, it's always going to look a little different than when you were doing it by yourself. So, you know what that's like doing this project on your own and, um, you know, bringing in another host would be a possibility, but it would change the overall flavor of what you're doing. Oh no, I, I do get that. I have a few, um, colleagues who work with me on the podcast, but they're, um, you know, rotating as guest interviewers and they're still working under a singular vision and the podcast is originally my idea my baby and i would never let it go to anyone else right, it's, um, right. it's, it's yeah the art analogy yeah it's hard to word it in a way that doesn't sound obnoxious but you're right it's you know yeah. your creation and you want to protect that and the van gogh um warhol analogy is a good one i'm gonna use that <laughs> Yeah, I mean, or you could go with Mark Twain and then, you know, bring in another, you know, bring in another author, you know, yeah. great author. It wouldn't matter. It's just it's just really it loses the singularity in its vision. And that's and that can always be dangerous to the overall creative process. So when I talk about that to people, no matter what, I sound like a pretentious prick artist, you know, so there's like no way to for me to really voice it to where I'm not, you know, it's, it, you can understand it because you're an artist yourself. I am a pretentious prick artist too. I get it. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> We're both pretentious pricks. But, you know, it's it's just something to where when I explain it to people, there's really only a few, you know, there's only certain terminology I can use. And, and the non-artists don't understand it that well, but those who've been in art do understand it. And those who've been in business partnerships understand it as well, man. It's 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 kind of a dangerous thing to bring somebody else in. Yeah, but you have had the um, privilege and ability to be involved in documenting veterans in other capacities. You're a co-host on the Global Recon podcast. Yes, yes. Uh, so I don't know how many of your uh, listeners out there have heard of Global Recon, but it is a, it is a major podcast here in the States. In fact, I believe it's the either the second or third biggest veteran or uh, military podcast in in the world right now as far as on the charts it's huge yeah uh yeah so i co-host that with uh, john uh every once in a while probably i probably co-host it uh you know about once a month or so um just because my schedule is so crazy that he has a hard time getting a hold of me and then i have a hard time getting a hold of him and so um when i get to do it it's a privilege and and a distinct honor but usually i bring one of my veterans on that i've covered for the project and uh we kind of interview that guy and and, and it's mostly a special operations podcast so we bring on a lot of green berets and navy seals and uh you know guys who are part of the unit um in aspects like that we have a, we've had quite a few uh, two commando guys on. In fact, one of my good friends, Eddie, he's, he's one of my best friends now. And 
He's a two-commando guy. Eddie Robertson. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, yeah, Eddie Robertson. Yeah, man. We've had him on the podcast too here. He's wonderful. Oh, awesome. That's great. Yeah, Eddie's... Yeah, in fact, I was just with Eddie in Las Vegas at the Salient Arms Party, um, and we had a tremendous time. It was my first time meeting him in person, but I've developed such a strong friendship that when I met him, it was like, oh, hey, I know you. You know, it's like... It's like with all these guys, they're all my brothers. So when I meet them in person for the first time, there's no awkward like exchanges, you know, it's just like immediately you're telling crude military jokes and everything's good, you know? So it's, it's a really cool environment. Absolutely. That's all great, Tim. And, uh, where exactly can people look up all your work online? Okay. So, uh, the website is www.thevetsproject.com. So T H E V-E-T-S project.com. And it's the first thing, if you search on Google, the Veterans Project will be the first thing that pops up in the search bar. So um, it's right there. And uh, then Instagram is at the Veterans Project. Uh, Facebook is just simply the Veterans Project. And then I've got a Twitter. It's project underscore veteran. I don't really do much on the Twitter because... You know, obviously Twitter is not very image based, but um, so so those are those are the social media accounts uh, that I'm running. And then you could check out uh, Global Recon at IG Recon on Instagram. Awesome. And that'll run you to their uh, to their iTunes and their podcast. So like I said, I don't host every I don't co-host every show, but. I have co-hosted quite a few, and it's been an absolute privilege, and John's a great guy. And John's another civilian, man. He never served in the military. I kind of bring the veteran aspect onto the show, and he kind of has that the civilian look. But John's a tremendous historian, so he knows a lot about history, as I'm sure you do as well. You know, And, and, and he, he brings definitely a, a great flavor to the show. Well, Tim, it's been a real pleasure to speak with you today. I greatly admire the work you're doing to promote positive change in the veteran space. And thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me so much, Alex. And, uh, and it was a privilege to be on your show. And it's always a privilege to run my mouth. So <laughs> <laughs> somebody, somebody inviting me to talk a lot? Oh, yeah, I could definitely do that. <laughs> we can help you with that. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, keep plugging along, brother. We need more people telling stories in this space. And um, I'm really admiring what you're doing with World War II veterans over there. And in fact, I need to make a trip over there soon because Eddie's, you know, willing to set me up at his place out over there, you know, so I can cover some of those guys in in Australia. And I'd really like to, uh, you know, interview. I've actually got a guy in Florida who I'm going to cover here soon who's a French Resistance uh, guy. He lives in Florida, but he was part of the French Resistance, which uh, I think will bring a a new distinct flavor to the Veterans Project. Um, And and I need to cover some of these guys from other countries because I I don't know how many are even alive now. But I I mean, I don't know if you have the facts or figures in front of you as far as uh, World War II veterans living in Australia. But I can imagine there aren't very many left at all. They're falling away all the time, very sadly. I don't have the facts immediately to hand, but we're feeling the race to get them documented as much as we can, as well as the Vietnam guys. They finally tell their story and the contemporary veterans so we can show that arc of redemption that we've talked about on the podcast. So we're constantly trying to balance the needs of telling all these generational stories. And it would be great great to have you out here to document our veterans' stories 
in your own way. So that'd be great. To yeah, have that'd be idea. great. And maybe we can have a maybe we can have a sit down in studio podcast, man. That would be that would be kind of cool. Um, I'd, I'd enjoy that. I'm not trying to take over or give you any ideas, but I think that would be kind of cool. Yeah, it'd be great to have you back on the show in person. Yeah, absolutely, man. Well, thanks again, Alex, for having me on. I, I definitely appreciate it. It's, it's a privilege, brother. Thank you. Tim's website is www.thevetsproject.com. That's T-H-E-V-E-T-S project.com. I encourage you to look it up and read some of the blog posts. Then bookmark the page and keep checking it out. It's truly inspiring stuff. Also follow them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by just searching The Veterans Project. You can also hear Tim on the Global Recon Podcast, available in Apple Podcasts and a bunch of other podcast apps. Their Instagram page is at IGRecon. That was the first bonus episode of Season 2 of Life on the Line. Follow us on Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast, follow us on Twitter at LOTLPod, and like us on Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Contact us on social media or through the website. We have a great mix of Australian veteran stories from last year's season of the podcast out already and plenty more to come this year. Subscribe in your podcast app to get all content. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget...